Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material from the podcast plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore and I hope you check it out. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. I'm Robert Child and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. Technology and Deception He, Hobart, was one of the few soldiers I have known who could be rightly termed a military genius, Sir Lytle Hart. Deception in warfare goes back to the first hurled rock. The Trojan horse is a perfect example. Technology is also a byproduct of warfare, because problems arise and a fix is needed quickly. Deception and technology also fit into the British desire to limit casualties, especially given their World War I experience and their natural desire to put one over on their Teutonic cousins, the Germans. The Germans used their engineering skills creating new weapons, but they were subject to Hitler's whims. The ME-262, the first jet in combat, scared the Allies to death, but Hitler was determined to use it as a bomber rather than a fighter. Still, the German pilots flying the ME-262 shot down 452 Allied planes in the last year of the war. The Allied pilots quickly developed their own tactics against the jet, leaving the plane alone in the skies but attacking it on takeoff and landing because of its low thrust power at slow speeds. The Germans were also the first to develop rocket power, with the V-1 and V-2 rockets. The V-1 was a very early addition of the cruise missile powered by a pulse jet engine. Only about 25% of the 9,521 launched hit their target, which was pretty big, England. The V-2 rocket was more sophisticated in design, and would become the prototype for the rockets of the space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the 1960s. Close to 3,000 V-2s were launched, mainly toward London and Antwerp, resulting in 9,000 deaths, primarily civilians. Hitler thought terror bombing would bring the British to the negotiating table. The population, which had already endured the much more damaging Blitz, wasn't phased. The Germans were also well advanced in work on an atomic bomb, but the work on it was in fits and starts. Hitler's racial policies weakened the program, Half of Germany's pre-war nuclear physicists were Jewish scientists who emigrated to Great Britain in the U.S. The German secret weapons, the saviors of Germany as spouted by Garibald's propaganda machine, were all too little, too late. The British were more pragmatic in their approach to new technologies, weapons, and opportunities that fell into their laps. Sonar development was the result of a search for defenses against submarines. It worked by sending out pulses and then recording the returning echoes when, and if, the pulses hit an object. The British called it ASTIC, a code word with no meaning, which was changed by the U.S. to SONAR for Sound Navigation and Radar to go along with RADAR, another British endeavor. RADAR, or Radio Detection and Ranging, is the air equivalent of SONAR. The majority of the advanced countries worked on radar during the 20s and 30s, but the British went at it with a vengeance. 
The English thought Germany was developing a type of death ray, and radar would stop it. Instead, radar proved to be able to pick up aircraft, and by 1939, southeast England was studded with radar towers. The Germans attacked these towers in the beginning of the Battle of Britain, and probably would have won if they had continued their attacks. Instead, Hitler, after experiencing RAF bombing raids on Berlin, switched to terror bombing of civilian targets, the Blitz. The British were also opportunistic. A few weeks before Germany invaded Poland, the Poles presented the German rotor enigma machine and ciphers to French and British intelligence officers in Warsaw. The Poles had cracked the code in 1932. The British codenamed Enigma the Ultra Project and began reading German commands that would impact land, sea, and air operations. Churchill told King George, it was thanks to Ultra we won the war. The Ultra Project was not revealed to the public until 1974. Having the codes often made for hard decisions. RAF Group Captain F.W. Winterbottom, who revealed Ultra in the 1974 book The Ultra Secret, wrote that Churchill had advanced warning of the Luftwaffe raid on the city of Coventry. Churchill ordered no defensive measures be made, fearing it would reveal enigma. 600 civilians died in the raid. The British tied the Ultra Project to their double-cross system when, in 1940, they captured and turned all German agents in the UK. The alternative to working for the British was hanging. The double agents were spread out around the country, transmitting information back to Germany using Morse code. The information was accurate, but usually not all that important. It was disconcerting to the average soldier who listened to Axis Sally on the radio. Her knowledge of troop movements and unit identification, spoken with a soft, sexy voice between the latest records, seemed uncanny to the G.I.s. They had no idea the information was planted by Double Cross. Axis Sally, a.k.a. Midge Gillars, grew up in Ohio and attended Ohio Wesleyan University studying drama. She left for New York, did summer stock, and then moved on to Paris working as an artist's model. She continued to move around, spending a few months in Algiers, coming back to the U.S., and finally settling in Dresden as a Berlitz teacher. She also went to work as an announcer on the German state radio. She was going to return to the U.S., but her German fiancé said he would never marry her if she returned to America. He was killed on the Eastern Front. Midge shot her mouth off at work against Germany and Japan on December 7th. She thought she would be thrown in jail. To avoid jail, she agreed to become the DJ the American soldiers would name Axis Sally, the Bitch of Berlin, broadcasting until May 6, 1945, one day before the German surrender. Midge stayed at large until March 1946, even though wanted posters were plastered all over Berlin. The Americans got a tip she was selling furniture at flea markets, picked her up, and flew her to the U.S. in 1948. She stood trial, was convicted of one count of treason, and sentenced to 10 to 30 years. She converted to Catholicism in prison and was paroled in 1961. She moved to Columbus, Ohio, and lived in a convent teaching French, German, and music at a Catholic academy. She completed her degree at Wesleyan and died of colon cancer in 1988. Besides feeding information to Midge, 
Ultra fed the Germans false facts about where and when the invasion would happen. British technology extended to the battlefield with Hobart's Funnies, named after their master planner, Major General Piercy Hobart. Hobart was tasked with adapting mostly Churchill tanks to take out specific obstacles, including tank traps, coastal walls, and minefields. He came up with the Crocodile, a Churchill tank converted to a flamethrower. The Aver, or Assault Vehicle Royal Engineers, carried a variety of guns and devices, including the Flying Dustbin, or Petard Mortar, with a range of 150 yards for use against concrete bunkers. The Aver could also be fitted with a fascine that carried logs to be dumped in ditches, a 30-foot girder that served as a bridge, a bobbin of canvas reinforced with steel pipe to provide support for following heavy machinery, a plow fitted to the front to explode mines, and the double onion, an Aver fitted with two demolition charges that attached to walls and then exploded by remote control. Hobart also re-engineered other tanks, including the DD, or Duplex Drive, floating Sherman tank, the Crab with a rotating flailing chain mechanism for exploding mines, and the Ark, a turretless Churchill with extendable ramps on each end that another tank could use to go up and over to avoid obstacles. The Funnies were also offered to U.S. forces, but only the DD floating tank was adopted. Most sunk. Eisenhower left the decision to use or not use the funnies to General Omar Bradley. He declined, not wanting to add Churchill tanks to his inventory, complicating an already complicated plan. Piercy Hobart was like many eccentrics, ignored at best or fired at worst, and then idolized when his crazy ideas actually worked. Early in the war, Hobart formed a mobile force in North Africa, which would become the famous Desert Rats, for his unconventional ideas on the use of armor, he was retired and sent back to the UK, where he joined the Home Guard as a lance corporal guarding his hometown of Chipping Camden. He turned the town into a fortress, and an article in the Sunday Pictorial was brought to Churchill's attention. Piercy was brought back and asked to come up with ways for armor to breach fixed positions like those at Dieppe. Hobart's funnies were the result, and Hobart was knighted for his efforts. He died in 1957 at the age of 72. The Brits topped off their deception work with Fortitude North, a campaign run out of Edinburgh Castle, by creating the fictional British Fourth Army. German reconnaissance planes could not penetrate the area, so the British used massive radio traffic, double agents Mutt and Jeff from the Ultra Scheme, and targeted commando raids on Norwegian beaches and targets. Fortitude North tied up 13 Wehrmacht divisions in Norway. The Americans added to the fun on a grander scale by inventing false armies commanded by the general the Germans feared most, General George S. Patton. Patton was under a cloud in the U.S. for slapping two soldiers suffering from battle fatigue in Sicily. Patton, nicknamed Old Blood and Guts, came from a military family that, like him, led from the front. His grandfather was a Confederate infantry commander, killed at the Battle of the Wilderness, and his great-uncle was killed in Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. After the slapping incidents, Patton was not given a command for 11 months. Eisenhower preferred Omar Bradley's more calm approach, holding Patton back for the charge across France after the invasion. 
So Patton was available. He didn't like it, but he went along commanding the fictitious 1st U.S. Army Group, or FUSAG, centrally located at Dover, and directly across the channel from Pas-de-Calais. The most feared American general was on Hitler's doorstep, but without an army. The army constructed dummy buildings, landing craft, and airplanes. The lack of German aerial reconnaissance put the emphasis on radio traffic, double-cross spy transmissions, and the star of the show, Patton. He was often photographed in the area, and intelligence put out communiques, noting him there while he was actually helping train the real Third Army. It was enough for the Germans to think Patton and his army were only 22 miles away to keep Pas-de-Calais defended by the German 15th Army up to and after the June 6th invasion. Technology and deception worked, and certainly limited casualties. But casualties would come because the invasion was on for June 5th, 1944. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series. Be sure to be with us for our next installment. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.